Today's guest is a well-known guy, guy who has started three different companies disrupting big food, and I realized I had to have him on Bulletproof Radio when I was giving a talk on hacking your brain at South by Southwest, and the room was entirely empty. And I'm like, what just happened? Like, like there's almost no one in the audience here. And what happened is uh, this guy uh, held an impromptu we'll call it a sing-along and speech with his brother, Elon Musk, on stage at the same time as my talk. So, <laughs> of course, I'm talking about Kimball Musk, who's uh, doing some amazing things that I was unaware of until he gave that talk at South By. When you hear someone talk about blood sugar, you might zone out. That's because a lot of us think that it's only relevant to people with type 2 diabetes. But blood sugar is a topic that everyone should understand. If you want to feel good and have energy, you need to balance your blood sugar. Research shows that even healthy people have wild swings in their blood sugar right after they eat, and spikes in blood sugar make your pancreas work harder. They also make you older, and they put you at a greater risk for weight gain, heart attack, and stroke. Here's why I'm talking about this. Bioptimizers has a new product called Blood Sugar Breakthrough. You take two capsules 15 minutes before a meal. Your body will push carbs and glucose into your muscles for use as fuel instead of fat. That means you get stable energy and you don't have that post-meal crash. Better yet, you can improve your workouts and get better gains at the gym. But the biggest benefit is that it'll improve your overall health. Just go to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health for an exclusive 10% off. So, Kimball, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Sorry about that at South by Southwest. I mean, <laughs> it was uh, hilarious. It was, it was too hard to turn down. You know, we, we, got, we got offered a, a space on the stage, uh, but we... What the requirement was that we were, we were, we, they would allow us to sing "My Little Buttercup," uh, which is a song from the Three Amigos, which is the silliest song in the world. And um, uh, people literally lined up two a.m. You know, for a talk was at noon the next day, and we got the whole audience you know, to sing the song with us out on the main stage of South by Southwest. Uh, it was it was a peak life experience. It was amazing. <laughs> so so I apologize. But uh, sometimes it, we just got to do what you got to do. It, it was well worth it. No apology <laughs> necessary. And I, I loved it that, that you and Elon just showed up just as, as real kind of humorous people like that. One of the things that you talked about, though, at South by wasn't you know, going to space and building amazing cars, although that's clearly part of what Elon talked about. You talked about your work with disrupting big food, your charitable work. And making farming something that's as distributed as, say, power generation should be. Yeah. How did you go from being like a tech entrepreneur investor in the 90s into being a food guy now? Like, walk me through your story. I mean, looking back, you know, Steve Jobs has this quote, when you look back on your life, you know, the dots are, you know, connected. But, you know, in the moment, it was, it truly was uh, one life-changing event after the other. My brother and I had great success in the 90s building uh, an internet company, first to do maps and door-to-door directions. And I watched how technology just massively disrupted the Yellow Pages, which most people don't, today don't even know what the Yellow Pages is, but <laughs> it was a multi-billion dollar industry in the 90s that the internet just took away. And it was so powerful to see the impact of technology. And when we sold that company, I had the freedom to do what I wanted. So I went to New York to learn how to cook, which was not intended as a career. I, I, I went in and I said, you know, I'm going to go... I love food so much. I'm going to go do this for real. I'm going to go do a career 
level course in uh, in at the French Culinary Institute in New York. And uh, while that was a wonderful experience, it was intense, and you know, it was like like Full Metal Jacket kind of you know screaming at you for six to eight hours a day. You're like, <laughs> really, I really do. You need to scream so much. Um, but it was it was an incredible way to to learn how to cook. Just before I graduated, just after I graduated, nine uh, eleven happened, and uh, again I wasn't really thinking about food as a career, but this one of the most powerful, awful or wonderful experiences that, that could ever happen to a human. I was right by. Uh, I live very close to the trade centers. Woke up to the sounds of the planes hitting the building. Wow! So like that close. We looked out the window, saw the towers fall, which if you people who are there I think can relate, but but people who weren't, it's like it's literally like seeing the Rocky Mountain range just collapse. It just it just breaks reality. It right. just wasn't wasn't a, a a human thing to experience. And the wonderful part about it was because of I just graduated from cooking school, uh, my mother's well known nutritionist and dietitian, uh, through her, I got to volunteer at for the firefighters and I cooked for them. And every day we'd cook real food cook that day, nourishing them. They go into these giant piles of melting metal, still melting six weeks after the World Trade Centers fell. And they'd come in and we'd feed them with food we cooked that day. They'd connect with each other, converted a gymnasium into a, into a dining hall. And they'd go right back out to save American lives. And, and just watching what real food can do for, for community to bring it together, it was kind of then that I said, you know, I, I can't not do food. Tech is neat. It's kind of a, a way to do something. And of course, you introduce tech into everything you do. But food is a gift we give each other three times a day. It's, it's such a powerful way to connect with the world and with each other. And I saw that in 9-11, and I just, I just never looked back. So that's when I transitioned to food and uh, came out to Colorado, opened the kitchen. And our goal there was really just a world-class neighborhood restaurant. We weren't I didn't have a concept of, uh, in fact, yeah, I was avoiding tech more than, I didn't want anything to do with tech. I was like, this is about community, this is about- Yeah, you can get tired of tech. <laughs> and you know, as things progress, of course, you can't avoid tech, and tech, is, tech has its wonderful applications. But what we struggled with in Colorado was, back in 2004, we didn't have access to the, the kind of food you get in New York. We only had access to the industrial food. You know, it's the stuff you talk about that causes rampant obesity and diabetes High calorie, low nutrition food destroys the the, the chemistry of the body, uh, creates tragedy amongst our especially low income community, and it's, it's something we've done to ourselves. You know, it's something we could we could fix. But but back in those days, we, we didn't have a choice. It's just the industrial food system, and so we started reaching out to local farmers. Uh, this is many years before the farm to table became a term, and we asked the farmers if they if they'd supply us. And there was a skepticism. They weren't very trusting of restaurants. Uh, but we tried, and we worked hard, and we built that trust. And we have a restaurant called Hedgerow, which is the first farm that would ever agree to work with us. <laughs> and, uh, and so we, to, to celebrate their name, the Hedgerow is, is, is our bistro in Denver and Indianapolis. But it was about getting the food to taste good. And That's hard. trusting the food. And industrial food is not about it tasting good. It's about shipping it for thousands of miles. It's mostly fried so that you, know, you, can, you can fry cardboard and make it taste good. You know, so it really is, uh, for us, real food at the time was about just getting it food that you trust and for it to taste good. And when we started working with the farmers, 
we really hit a nerve and uh, as a result one of the we're one of the credited as one of the sort of the, the founders of farm to table movement whatever that's called whatever 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 the term is but we we saw success because it just tasted so much better speaking of starting uh, starting restaurants, we're actually doing this interview at Next Door, which is your restaurant down on Pearl Street in Boulder, which is why people might be hearing dishes in the background right. and all. Uh, and it's uh, it's an amazing thing because I, I checked out the menu. It's all real food, as you'd expect, and it's very affordably priced. And something that you've talked about is you'd like to have a thousand of these around the world in order to make food that's good for you that tastes good and is affordable because not everyone can you know, drop $50 on a meal. Right. In fact, no one should have to do that to get real food. Right. How are you going to get this concept into a thousand locations? Like that is, that is yeah, mega scale. Uh, that sort of leads me to another life-changing event for me. So the kitchen was, was it is today a uh, well-respected, uh, very successful restaurant, but it wasn't quite moving the needle for me. It was, we need the kitchen because what it does is it, it helps build a local farm supply chain. It, it, it works with farmers in a very flexible way. But the price point is just simply too high. It is a $50 yeah. average ticket per person. And I was really frustrated with this. And, and in 2010, while I was tackling with this challenge, it was like an existential challenge. It's like, like I'm here to just make food for wealthy people. Like it's just, right. it just, I feel like I have a greater purpose in life. And, um, I went down a ski hill in 2010 in Jackson Hole on an inner tube, and the tube flipped. I landed on my head going 35 miles an hour, Ooh. broke my neck at C6 and C7, ruptured the spine, paralyzed on my left for three days. It's hard to describe paralysis. It's like a, it's like a non-feeling. Like there's no pain. Right, there's nothing there. There's just nothing. It's just, uh, and the doctors were telling me, you know, you, you're, we can fix this. This break is a, is a particular kind of break. Very lucky that you know, with, with surgery, they can, they can remove the paralysis. And I'm like listening to them and, you know, nodding my head because it's the only thing that moves. And tears are just streaming down the side of my face. I mean, it's just, it's just not, it's an inconceivable thing to describe. And I just kind of told myself, you know, because the doctors kept like, giving me courage, like, we can't fix this, you know. Just, just give us, a, give us a few days. Get the surgeons in from around the, around the country to 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 fly in for the surgery. I went into surgery on a Tuesday night, and I just told myself, if they do fix me, I'm going to work on bringing real food to everyone, whatever that meant. I didn't have a def definition of what it would mean. I woke up the next morning, and they they said the surgery was successful. It's quite anticlimactic because. While it was successful, I had to be horizontal for two months. Oh God! <laughs> they didn't tell me that when I was going to surgery. So, but for those for that two month period, I sat with my wife at the time, uh, Jen, to design school gardens that would scale and reach many many schools. We were doing school gardens at a small scale before, but they didn't scale very well. And then I started to work with Hugo, my co-founder at the restaurants, on on next door, which which um, was to take the same principles of the kitchen. And make the price, you know, fifteen dollars instead of fifty dollars, which is really a Chili's and Applebee's price point. What would it take for us to to deliver up, you know, food at that price? Could we do it? Could we get farmers to 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 sign up for it? And we, you know, literally while I'm in the hospital, you can imagine with my mind, it spins a lot normally. But if I'm like locked in a horizontal position, it spins like thirty thousand miles an hour. And I came out of the hospital and. 
we said, you know, I think we could do this. And we got some farmers to support us. And so next door is same principles of the kitchen, work with local farmers, real food that we trust, uh, real food that we trust to nourish our body, real food that we trust to nourish the farmer, real food that we trust to nourish the planet, and to do it at prices that normal Americans can afford. So our goal is to replace all the chilies and applebees in the country. Now, the people, I think hedge funds probably, who own chilies and applebees at this point are probably not so happy about that. Like there, there is a big food industry that's just well entrenched. Like the processes, the ways we, we've been doing things, the ways we think about food, you know, how cheap can we make it? Can we make it taste good enough, right? And hopefully be a little bit addictive so you'll come back really right. often. Um, how are you going to break that? Well, you know, I've, I've watched industry after industry be disrupted. You know, my, I've, I happen to have lived, you and I both live in a, in a very interesting time. The information revolution has yeah. has disrupted one industry after the other. And there's no doubt in my mind, uh, food is the, is the current one and, and, uh, and is being disrupted as we speak. But the consistent thing is that the, the existing players just never figure it out. You know, like even yeah. in Tesla with electric cars, GM is still hasn't figured it out. And, and yeah, like, how could they miss that, right? I mean, how could they miss that? But it's <laughs> like they're working on pickups because that's pickup trucks because that's in their mind the future. And you're like, wow. And so it's just never, it's never really a case of the existing players and how they feel because that really doesn't matter. What matters is creating a product that meets the customer and the guest at the, you know, where they need it. You know, so creating real food that truly nourishes the guests that they connect with at a price they can afford, that's what matters. And that has been a great success for us. There's two things you talked about there. Uh, one is supporting farmers. The other one, though, is like nourishing the planet yeah. with, with the food that we eat. How do you see the system of food? Like, how does that work in your mind? Explain me. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we work hard on this. So uh, this idea of, of real food is food you trust to nourish your body, which I think you talk very well about. And I think that you've, you've really helped move millions of people to really understand how important it is that food really nourishes your body. We take it another level where to say, actually, you also need to think about the farmer. And yes. if you can include the farmer in your thinking where you trust this to support and nourish the farmer, uh, you, you, you really start building an ecosystem which, which thrives and, and brings more nourishing food to you. The final one is we have to understand how this impa impacts the planet. Mm -hmm. And we, we, for example, didn't do burgers for a long time at Next Door. People wanted burgers, they loved burgers. We couldn't find a way to do it that, that resonated with our values. And eventually a rancher came to us and said, he's willing to sell us the whole cow. And we would be able to uh, control and work with the rancher on what the, the animal would be fed from birth until uh, they're served on, on, in, our, in our restaurant. Every single thing they eat and everything they do, they, 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 the manure would, would go in and, and be a carbon sink in the soil. And so we kind of said, hey, I think we can do this. So the prime cuts will go to the kitchen or, or hedgerow, but the burgers can now go to next door. And we found a way to serve burgers that is truly real food that we totally trust to nourish the body, to nourish the farmer, and to nourish the planet. And we are so proud of that work. It's, it's, uh, it has been such an impact, and it shows other restaurants that it's possible. About 90% of small farmers have day jobs. 
because they can't make ends meet. And I, I've studied this. I live on a 32 acre small farm. We do permaculture. We have four sheep and two pigs. Where's the farm? Outside Victoria, BC. Okay, cool. Awesome. And, and I, I wanted to grow my own food. I wanted my kids to experience that. And it, it's Are a you lot Canadian? of work. Uh, I'm a permanent resident, but I'm American. Okay, cool. Yeah. I, I have a Canadian passport. So that's how I came to Canada in 91 uh, oh, to study you? there. And I uh, love Canada. And then I moved down to California and became a, a citizen of America in 2004. Well, congratulations. I, I'm still working on getting my Canadian passport. And I'm okay. hoping it'll happen in the next year or it's two. It's a wonderful country. I, I, I love Canada. I've been there for eight years. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah, and and, some of my best friends come from Victoria. So oh, really? it is a, it's a, it's a, it's a gem of a, of a place. Well, come, come and visit it. Yeah. it. It's got an amazing farming ecosystem there. And not a lot of glyphosate sprayed and, and very clean air and water. Yeah. And those are, I mean, it's kind of hard to live up there and run a big company. Uh, but I do it because, well, when I'm home, I can recharge and I know what I'm eating. And yeah. I, I know everything about how the plants grew. I know right. what the animals ate. Um, Colorado is building a similar kind of yes. ecosystem. We've, we've watched it happen. You know, back in 2004, we had a thriving farmer's market and that was pretty good. But uh, it's easily 10 to 20 times the size it was back in 2004. And that's because uh, consumers are really appreciating how much better it tastes to, to get food from local farmers, how much more they trust it. And uh, the local farmers have also started working with a lot more restaurants and it's become, farm to table is now a, a thing, you know, it's and, amazing. And it, it pays farmers a living wage, which is like yeah, farmers and teachers kind of get screwed. They, they both do the hardest work and right. get paid the least, right? I, I think that was the, certainly is the case in industrial farming. If you are a 100-acre farmer in Iowa farming the industrial product of corn or, or soybeans, most of which just goes to ethanol or, or right. uh, high-fructose corn syrup, it's just terrible, horrible uses of, of our beautiful land, you still only earn, I think the, the average income is $22,000. Yeah. I mean, it is... So terrible. But if you are a local farmer close to a city like Denver and you have a 30-acre farm, you could actually have a total revenue line of maybe half a million dollars and you live on the farm. It's a pretty good life. And yeah, you, and you might have you know income for the family in the hundred dollars to $150,000 range. That's actually a pretty good life. And you're, you're a real part of the ecosystem. Yeah. And you can see what happens when animals poop on soil. Yes. And, and you, you regenerate Coming back that. to the planet and how it regenerates right. the soil. Exactly. And what we're talking about there is a move from centralized to decentralized, which happened in, in computing where we both sort of cut our teeth. Uh, we have this you know, decentralized cloud. There's still some centralization, but there's more compute power on our iPhones than right. we used to have on servers a while ago, right? And we're talking about doing that with, with power. Uh, you know, putting a battery uh, in your house, doing solar in yep. your house, where all of a sudden we're not generating these massive plants. And now we're doing it with food. And one of the side effects of this, one that I'm, I'm targeting, is that we can have healthy soil and we can have food that doesn't have to cross the globe for us to eat it, which right. reduces fuel consumption. So everybody wins on this, except uh, the, the big food conglomerates who want the high fructose corn syrup fried in canola oil or right. whatever. Well, the big lie about uh, this, one of my infuriating pet peeves of the Monsantos of the world is they hide behind this mantra that they're feeding the world. And the truth is they're not at all. Uh, GMOs uh, have, not, have not succeeded in doing that. But worse than that, 40% of the farmland that grows corn, 40%, which is 25 million acres, that's twice the size of California's Central Valley, farms ethanol. <laughs> so we don't actually know what to do with our land because we don't have any other use for it. Well, 
we should be growing real food on it. But what what we're doing with these folks is we're um, these farmers, these poor farmers are, are stuck in this industrial food system. They don't know what else to farm. They don't understand real food. And it's the saddest thing. And the, and the most angry and bitter uh, farmers out there are the ones that are farming this, this industrial food system. But from a from a planet perspective, ethanol is neutral at best. It takes a gallon of oil to produce a gallon of ethanol. It, it's the worst it's the decision worst ever. Decision ever. And it's and it's a monstrous subsidy to the industrial food system to keep it alive. When we come to our senses around ethanol, which will either happen through you know, government realizing that's a stupid idea. Even the oil companies hate it. I mean, if the oil companies hate it, you know it's a bad idea. <laughs> uh, it's just incredible. And so where where we're headed, you know, either electric cars will take over, or eventually electric cars will take over, we won't need ethanol. But there are other ways to come to our senses. We're going to have a lot of farmland to farm real food. And I get really excited about that. One of the problems that, that I'm concerned about when I, I put on my, my future hat is that we're spraying a lot of stuff on the soil in these farms that destroys the soil. And there's a complex web of, of mushroom family, of fungi, there's bacteria, and when you spray chemicals on that, you disrupt that, and you end up with sort of this like substance that holds dead, up dead plants, yeah. but there's no life in it. Yeah. Are you working on, on a way, or have you seen technology to help restore the soil? Because like you said, there's going to be 25 million acres where there's no animals at all right now. So yeah. we talk about animal animal cruelty and all that. There's just no butterflies. There's no mice. There's no turtles. There's no salamanders. There's no nothing. It's yeah. sterile. And we're going to have to bring that back. Yeah, I mean, I'm working on a, on a, on a farm in Memphis. So I've, I've, uh, in partnership with the city of Memphis, we're taking over a 200-acre piece of land that used to be a chemical cotton farm. Wow. Right, right in the middle of Memphis, you know, and it's amazing that this existed. It's bizarre that we allowed this to happen. And so, you know, the city came to its senses. We shouldn't be doing, doing this. And so we've been now, we're in our third year of uh, putting nutrients back into the soil, which is growing cover crops. And unfortunately, even three years in, it's okay. You know, it's going to take... 20 years to have that soil be thriving again. But but it, but we're on our way, you know. So I think the, the challenge, of course, is going to be how do we, you know, kickstart it? How do we accelerate it? How do we figure that out? And, I, and, and I, I continue to noodle on that to say, okay, if we can figure out what to do with that land that's currently farming ethanol for corn at a, at a loss, people are losing money. Right. So, you know, it's just such a wasted waste of our beautiful land. You know, I, I know at some point we, someone will either I'll do it or, or someone will figure it out because it's just an opportunity waiting to 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 be to be solved. But it's a very very exciting one, and it's unfortunate how much damage we've done to our soil. But it is fixable, and we just need to go figure out how to do that. One of the first steps is get this decentralized food production back online. Yeah, totally. And part of the discussion there involves animals. And there are a group of people who say you know you should never eat an animal and. My, I, I was actually a raw vegan for quite a while and it did bad things to my health, oh, really? Like really bad things. And I've, I've heard that story over and over. Uh, and I was a very well-educated, yeah. you know, mixing the right foods and all. But I look at eating industrial meat as something that I don't do. I wouldn't ever serve it at the, the Bulletproof coffee shop. I wouldn't, right. I, I just, I don't put it in my kids. I don't put it in my body and I, I'll, I'll eat a vegan meal before yeah. I'll eat that because it's not food. Exactly. On, on the flip side though, I mean, you, um, you're serving meat. Right, I recommend you know, only grass-fed animals. Hopefully, from someone you know. Yep. Um, what's your What's your take on on the environmental pros and cons of eating meat? Yeah, I, I think you and I probably have a similar attitude or, or philosophy, which is 
you know, industrial meat is so bad. It's bad for you. It doesn't taste that good. Um, it's meant to be, you know, shipped and, and growth hormones just to, yeah. just to do awful things to our, to our animals. Just to, I mean, their, their hooves are small. They, can, they literally can't even stand up. And it's, it's an awful, awful uh, thing that we do to, to create, you know, a poor quality product, but it's high calorie, you know, n- not healthy for people. And so for us, the, um, the way we look at meat is to think more along the lines of trusting where the food comes from, trusting where the meat comes from, knowing where your farmer comes from. Uh, we have a proprietary thing we've, you know, approach to feeding our, our animals, which is mostly grass fed, but it's, we, we do a few, we, we do a few other things that we, we, we believe is actually healthier and, and, sure. and tastier, but, uh, but it's, it's how we do it. And, and, and we have total control of that. And it comes back to trusting and what, what that really means at the end of the day is you're going to, I think a good diet is going to really mean less and better quality meat. Yeah. So think about enjoying meats that are raised well, that you trust that came from a decentralized system where the farmer's local, where you understand what it was fed. That would probably mean you're paying a, a little bit more, not too much more, but a little bit more, and, but you're going to trust it and it's going to taste better. And I think... We'll all be better off if we have a diet that is that includes meat, but but not at the quantities that we've done in the past. I recommend like two to four ounces. That's of about right. Meat. Exactly. And you don't need the sixteen ounce steak. Yeah. And if you eat a lot of meat, it actually shortens your lifespan because you're getting too many of the inflammatory amino acids, and they're essential at small doses. So would you spend twice as much on high quality meat and eat half as much of it and fill in the rest of the calories with vegetables? Right. And the answer is most people probably would if they could buy vegetables. If they could buy, I mean, we, we, next door, our, our top seller is a roasted veggie bowl. Now, that is a bizarre thing to have as a top seller. It, mm-hmm. There's no way any other restaurant concept in the world's top seller is a roasted veggie bowl. You know, in Santa Monica, our coffee shop, that's our top seller okay. too. It has but, grass-fed steak on top What we of it, do though, yeah. exactly, is yeah. what we say oh, is, <laughs> is two to three ounces of, of protein, meat protein. So uh, my favorite is curry chicken mm-hmm. goes on top of it and it's just the flavors come together. You can put a, uh, we don't actually uh, offer beef with it, but if, you know, people could, uh, could sure. ask that. But the reason why it's so popular is because it's exactly the solution that we just described. It's a wonderfully satisfying meal of, of Vegetables, you know where they came from. They're organic. They're delicious. Uh, the and then you put a few ounces of of protein on it. It really is that perfect rounded meal. One of the things that frustrates me, I, I travel sometimes 150 days of the year, so I have control of my food when I'm at home. But when I'm on the road, uh, sometimes I'm like, I think I'll fast. Like there's just nothing I want to eat here. But even you if and you, I have the same philosophy. I, like, I, I literally, <laughs> I, 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 sometimes I'm in areas where it's just McDonald's. A few others is like, I think I'm going to starve. Yeah, like it, it's okay to not eat yeah, for, for a meal. day, exactly. right? Exactly. Even if I go to you know a, a hotel though and say you know I want a plate of vegetables, it's like an order of asparagus is three stalks of asparagus, and it's like I want seventeen orders of asparagus, <laughs> and, and it's you know two hundred dollars. I've never actually spent that much money on asparagus, but but literally they just won't make a vegetable bowl at it's, any it's price. It's such an unusual request; they wouldn't even know where to start. Yeah, uh, but you're doing it in your restaurant, and you're finding that people actually want to buy that. They like love it, it. and. I, but you do have to create that satisfying rounded meal. Yeah. If uh, if what we did at next door was a preachy, unsatisfying vegetable bowl uh, with a little bit of meat on it, because we're reluctantly doing that, uh, it just wouldn't succeed. You know, uh, and I think it's it's really about understanding. You have to meet the guest where they where they are, which is 
They do want food that trusts. They do want food that nourishes them. They do want food that nourishes the farm and the planet. It's got to be affordable. It's got to taste good. And also, when you're done eating it, you shouldn't still be hungry. You right. can tell if you were satisfied. nourished. Yeah. yeah and, and a lot of times you see, you know, these fluffy you know, raw kale bowls or something. You eat that, and like I feel like I didn't eat. Can I have yeah, a lot exactly. more? We're, we're, are we going to have lunch yet or dinner <laughs> yet? <laughs> and, and so the, there's a feeling, and I, I I like to call it like a food high. Yeah. But and you actually make food that, that does that at at a crazy low price point, which I, I yeah, really I mean, admire. Our price point is on average ten dollars for an entree, and and with with a beer with a wine, our average ticket is fifteen dollars per person. Uh, we are very proud of that. That is a that is extremely affordable. Uh, in and is you know matches maybe it's a little higher maybe a dollar more than a chili or an applebee's but we do it we we actually use a lot of automation to actually take food in from the local farmer and cook it consistently if you you know if your industrial food system that you know you're a you're a chili's you're getting a chicken sandwich that chick piece of chicken was grilled a thousand miles away right and they'll laser little grill marks on it so it looks <laughs> like it was grilled but it's like it's literally cooked a thousand miles away and the, and the the skill of the chef is a pair of scissors cut it out of the bag put it in the microwave put it on your plate. That's that's not even an exaggeration. That's exactly what they do. And but at next door, our food we have no freezers. We the food comes in fresh every day. How do you do that? Because our our line cooks are wonderful. They're, our chefs are wonderful, but they're young. They're 18, 20, 22 year olds. They don't have twenty years of skills to learn how to cook this stuff. But automation enables us to help them, empower them. You know, an eighteen year old to cook like a two star Michelin chef within a few hours. That's what's disruptive about what you're doing. It, it's that your assumptions are different than what Big Food created. Big Food just said, look, how cheap is it? Does it look pretty enough? And does it taste good enough? And that's really the only right. algorithm. They, they'll go down to the, what is the least good it has to look? What is the least Correct. tasty it has to be? What is the least nutrition it has to be? Because everything about for them is price. There is no regard for anything else. And you're betting essentially that people are going to spend a dollar more to get a meal that's trusted and nourishing and makes them feel good. Yeah. And I'll tell you, lots of people will spend five dollars more, ten dollars more. Uh, and I'm I'm lucky, especially the amount I travel. I will spend all of my travel budget on quality food because I right. I do not know how to perform. We've actually done, done studies at next door with our guests, and consistently people are kind of. Uh, this is going to sound a bit weird. They're they're like this. Should, this should charge. This should cost more because yeah. it comes back to trust, right? So they're used to going to Whole Foods and it's quite expensive, or they go to other, other restaurants and it's quite expensive, and then they come to next door and it's one third the price. They're like the the feedback we get is it kind of, they kind of want it to cost more, and our answer to that is actually for you guys, you're in Boulder or you're downtown Santa Monica. Sure, you can afford more, but that's not the goal. Goal no. is to be in two thousand restaurants across America. So our price point has to be accessible to middle America, has to have, you know, get people excited to eat it. And, and so we work super hard to get that price point more affordable than it needs to be, but long-term, we believe it is the right price. And, and if we can keep doing it, and, and the farmers are willing to continue to grow with us and support us, uh, it's gonna be great. I mean, how wonderful would it be? I, mean, I just can't imagine how wonderful I'm gonna feel when I'm you know, visiting those farmers in Iowa, and I get to go eat it next door. Instead yeah. of being forced to starve until I get home. That, that vision of being able to go to any city in the country and find a meal that you actually want to eat. Oh, that you trust that's delicious. Yeah. Oh my God. That I, <laughs> that's, gives me goosebumps. It's disruptive and it's, uh, it, it's what the world needs right now uh, because 
the side effect of, of this kind of thing is that every disease of aging will decline. Diabetes, Alzheimer's, heart disease, cancer, all of those, just magically the, the incidence of them will go down. Right. right. And if people aren't spending more to do it because you thought about the system, because you added automation, because of things like that, the only loser here is big industry. The only loser is big. We bypass the system entirely. Like it's amazing. We have a restaurant in downtown Denver and it's in a train station and it's an amazing, awesome location, but it's quite an awkward thing to get deliveries and to get um, to get trash picked up. And we have relationships with our farmers where they pick up all of our compost and they deliver their food directly to us. And we get a call from the landlord saying, uh, something wrong with you, uh, your system, where are you guys hiding your trash? <laughs> and I'm like, well, we don't have trash because all of our wines are kegged, so there's no bottles. All of our food is composted. Any food waste is composted, so there's no waste. And we have this tiny little box we do once a week. We're serving three, 4,000 people. That's a, that is our you know, petroleum-based plastics. That is literally all of our trash. And we have no Cisco truck pulling up behind our restaurant to deliver. You know, so the, the, the landlord is thinking we're pulling something and we're, we're pulling his leg or, or try, his team have to go deal with, with, with every other restaurant except us. And so we bypass the industrial food system entirely including waste. That is a, that's a beautiful thing. And you've also taken some of your success and you've started doing nonprofit work with uh, low-income schools around helping kids understand where food comes from. Tell me what you're doing there. Yeah, so that's Big Green. It's our nonprofit. Uh, we started out, before my accident, we were doing two school gardens a year. as a philanthropic effort. Mostly it was an employee of the kitchen that was doing it. And uh, it was wonderful uh, to do, but it was, but it, it was one of those things where you you don't invest enough in the beginning, and then it just costs more and more and more every year to kind of keep going. And I actually ran the math when I was in a hospital. I was I was ran the math of if we were to do two gardens a year until I died, we wouldn't finish Boulder County <laughs> until I was like a hundred hundred years old. So it was uh, I was like, we just got to fix that. We got to figure out a way to reach more 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 people, more kids uh, uh, with greater impact and faster. And so uh, we designed the learning garden, which is a more, which is a scalable version of a school garden. School gardens are amazing. They improve test scores. They improve kids' connection to food. They change their what they eat, but they don't. But they're hard to teach in. They're they're usually in the corner of the schoolyard. They usually fall apart because they're hard to maintain. And we said, well, let's make it beautiful. Let's build it out of modern day playground equipment materials, which means it'll last longer than the bricks in the wall of the school. Let's raise it up, but let's take the fence away. Let's make this really easy to teach and make the kids enjoy it, enable, en enable the kids to enjoy it during recess so they experience it much more than just through their lessons. Instead of teaching kids about food, we train teachers to teach science through the growing of food. So our kids get 90 minutes a week in the learning garden because they're learning science and math and history and English. It has been so amazing. We, we did our first one in 2011 as a prototype. And again, we've been doing two a year until then. 2012, we did 50. And now we do between 100 and 150 a year. These are new gardens These are 2,000 square foot outdoor classrooms that are large infrastructure for these schools, beautiful uh, permanent additions to the schoolyard. Uh, we're in seven cities. We do 100 schools at a time. Chicago, Denver, L.A., Memphis, Indianapolis, Pittsburgh, and we just announced Detroit. 
And, and the kids actually participate in growing the food. They and grow they the food it. and they eat it. I was just at a salad harvest day yesterday, and this particular school has just had the most bountiful harvest. And these kids were trying to figure out what they were going to do. One, one, one class made a kale hummus uh, with the kale from the garden. Another, another one, another one uh, made salads. There was, uh, there was a baby kale. So the, the, they were just eating that raw, yeah, which was amazing, you know. Wow. And for a child who grows up thinking that Cheetos are, are food. Seriously. And the industrial food system has really penetrated our school systems in awful ways where they'll give Cheetos for free to the teacher and they'll use it as, as so the teacher will use it as incentives. Oh. It's so sad. And we, we have one t- teacher that now uses strawberries, that grows strawberries in the learning garden and they use strawberries as the incentives. So wow. strawberries, they're not, it's not super bountiful. So if you have a little, little area, a little bed of strawberries, you might have, I don't know, 30 to 50 strawberries. So, but picking them when they're ripe, when they're delicious, that's, like, that's something the teacher can now use as an incentive. Oh my God, it's the most wonderful thing. And these kids get so excited and they get so protective of their strawberries and <laughs> it's so wonderful. <laughs> that, that's just, that's a life-changing experience uh, yeah, it's for, wonderful. for children. Um, there's something else though around decentralization, and these these aren't growing enough food to you know feed the, all the kids every day. Right. But it, it's part of the experience of food. Um, you've done some work around taking shipping containers and turning them into high productivity farms because there are places where there isn't enough sun, there isn't enough soil, there isn't enough water, but we still want food, and we don't want food shipped around the planet. Right. What are you doing in that space? Yeah. So I I uh, I've been working with farmers, and I continue to work with soil based farmers primarily. Uh, and they're wonderful folks, um, but the, they're not young. Uh, they're pretty old. And I continue to, to encourage young people to get into, into farming and work, work with a number of organizations, the, young, the National Young Farmers Coalition, phenomenal group. The problem is, what I found is that all of our young folk live in the city. Right. And they want to live in the city. And we're now we're urbanizing at a rapid pace. So Trying to sell someone on, you know, go go to the, you know, the farmland of Iowa is it's, it's a tough sell. It's not a lot of dating and parties. No, and- it is a tough sell. <laughs> You're a millennial, like, oh, cool, I'm going to go to Cedar Rapids. Like, eh, I don't think so. And um, I think over time, maybe those things will, will kind of find a way to attract folks. But the reality is, our young yeah. folk are in the cities, and so I I I've found this. Uh, we've been watching urban farming tech for a long time, and to be quite honest, until about five years ago. It really was an industrial food product. It didn't taste good. Uh, it wasn't really grown to be nutritious. wasn't grown to taste good. In fact, there's this famous or infamous thing called a Holland tomato. Mm-hmm. Holland tomato is the, most of the in, indoor farming tech in the, over the years comes out of Holland. Uh, is a tomato that is designed to look. It looks red. It is round, but if you eat it, it just tastes like water. Mm-hmm. But it's heavy. And you know, people buy tomatoes by the pound, so it kind of matches the industrial food system's uh, ethos of let's get something to the consumer that looks like a tomato, uh, weighs a lot, so we can charge more for it, looks round and red, uh, and can it's shelf stable, so we can ship it thousands of miles. Uh, truth is, it doesn't taste good. It has virtually no nutrition to it, and that really is the history of urban farming. But about five years ago, uh, and I'm, I'm close to this, I started watching tech around lighting come around where the food can now be grown to taste better and the food can be grown to not just be nutritious, you can design the nutrition. You can say, I want more vitamin C in the strawberry. I want more vitamin D in the strawberry. That's amazing. And 
Um, I went to this uh, uh, tech lab in, in, in Holland a few years ago where they actually had strawberries lined up. And this strawberry is meant to be, um, this strawberry is grown to be a small size with a sweet taste, meant more for jams. Uh, this strawberry is a, is a larger size with a tart taste, meant, for, meant more for, for desserts and, and, and tarts. Uh, this one has more vitamin C in it. This has more vitamin D in it. It just blew my mind that you could now do this as a chef to design your food. And so Square Roots is our company in New York where we have uh, shipping containers converted into indoor farms. Each farm contains a, the, can grow the equivalent of about two acres of outdoor produce. It's a 320 square feet container. Uh, so, what does it cost to buy a shipping container and, and kit it out in order to do this? Well, these are used shipping containers, so they're not right. very expensive. The cost is actually not that much. The, right now, what we're doing is building the tech platform that makes it relatively easy for a young farmer to, to learn how to farm quickly. Our program brings young farmers in for a, a year at a time, although now our farmers are asking it to be longer than that, but so far it's been a year at a time. We have 10 farms in Brooklyn. We did a call for applications the first year. We got 500 applications for those 10 farms, which tells me that the future of farming in America is very bright. Young people want to farm. They just don't want to move to Iowa. They love <laughs> the idea of working with food. And so. Uh, and then the second year, we had 1,100 applications. Wow. So the, the, it's so wonderful to see these young folks coming in and uh, being able to be connect with food, be part of their community, grow food for their community, and do it in the city where they live, and, and be entrepreneurial about it. Be too. entrepreneurial, yeah. When we, our program is actually an entrepreneurial program where they get literally a business in a box. It's a shipping container with that grows food, and they have to figure out what they should grow where. And uh, our first year, we we give them a lot of guidance. We like this. This is you, you're going to grow this for a little while. But as we get to this, as they get closer to their second year, they, they have a little bit more understanding of what the, 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 their consumer wants as an entrepreneur. They can go figure out what they might want to sell, grow and sell. And by their third year, they're, they can have multiple shipping containers. The other really powerful thing about what we're doing is they don't even have to continue with us. If they want to, the USDA is a partner with us. The Department of Agriculture will give them a three hundred fifty thousand dollar loan to start their own farm. Wow! And you can buy a lot of shipping containers and LED lights for yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, if indoor farming, you could do something very big. Some of these folks actually want the loan to go do their own farm. They do end up wanting to go back to their roots in Indiana or Iowa, and and it's quite nice to to see that. Uh, I still don't see it at much scale. I mean, most of the scale is people want to be in the city, but over time, I think it's gonna. Be a pretty cool thing to be able to have have your family on your farm, live in a live nearby the city that you love, and be part of that community and grow food um, either indoor or in soil that that really nourishes your community. I would I would do ten of those right now on my small farm because I live in Canada. It's dark half the oh year, my God. It's so really like perfect. All of winter, yeah. I could have that stuff. I could feed the local community. Yeah. We have a little farm stand now. It's yeah. very small, but um, I would. I mean, that's the sort of thing I do. But I honestly don't have enough time and expertise to become proficient at running those things, but you'd get in Victoria, you're close enough to Vancouver where you'd yeah. get enough young people that would want to do that. You know? yeah. So that would be a great Vancouver, especially as it would be a wonderful city for us to do a square roots campus. Well, I, I think I, I know a lot of people up there would be interested. So we, we can chat about that, but I, I do think that there's enormous, just the whole basically top third and bottom third of the planet where there's not enough sun half the year. Yeah. Shipping containers can feed a lot of people yeah, right. in a way that's organic. You don't have bugs. It, it's, it's a transformative technology in yeah. and of itself. And I, well, what's wonderful about square roots is 
It really complements the local food system. The soil-based farmers are generally sold out. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, because of the farm-to-table movement, because of the desire for local food, if you're a, a soil-based farmer in the New York area, you are sold out. Um, what we do at Square Roots is we complement that and add supply and the local, local supply. And we're really taking the business away from shipping in food from Australia or Mexico, where it may be organic down there, but this is ridiculous that we shipped food thousands and thousands of miles. I mean, sometimes even lettuces. This is so bizarre that we, that, that we do that. And so Square Roots has really been this powerful complement to, to the local food system that's already there. I see a, a really bright future uh, for uh, what food's going to look like over the next 10, 20 years. And it, it has to be decentralized. It has to be local. And it can be with automation and with urban farming check. It can be decentralized. It's better if it's decentralized. It's tastier. You don't have to transport it. You support your local uh, farmer, local business people. Uh, this globalization that we that we created over the years has its, has its benefits, but one of them is not tasty food. It is not <laughs> nutritious food. You know, it's terrible. Uh, it's it's food is not meant to travel like that. Food is supposed to be connected, and and, and you're supposed to trust it. And and uh, Square Roots is doing that. Next door, other restaurants that connect with local farmers are doing that, and it's it's wonderful to see the change that's happening. Kimball, you've you've had a a really interesting life. I mean, you you survived being paralyzed. Uh, you've had a career as a, as a tech entrepreneur, and you know, you've had the ability to, to see and do lots of things. And you've had that rare opportunity to sit down and say, what do I really want to do now? Uh, because I can do whatever I want to do. And just based on your life's learning and everything you've seen and done, if someone came to you tomorrow and said, Kimball, I want to perform better at everything I do as a human being, what are your three most important pieces of advice? What would you offer? Well, I think... This is gonna obviously be obvious. Three colorful meals a day, and what I mean by color is most Americans will eat, you know, brown food, beige food, you know, meat and potatoes, things like. And there's nothing wrong with that, but but add color to your plate, and uh, you'll just have a spring in your step. Your blood sugar levels will be will be in a healthier place. You'll be you'll get the nutrition your body needs. So that's number one. Uh, I find being outdoors to me is changes my life. You know, like I, I live in Boulder. It's one of the most beautiful outdoor environments. But get out, get outside, you know, get out of the office, get out of, get out of, uh, out of your home. Just be outdoors. Uh, even if you're in New York City, just, just go to Central Park, you know, do, do whatever. But be outdoors more. And I think technology for all of its benefits has sometimes sort of drawn us into a cave and, I, and we're not really meant for that. And then uh, the final one, this is something that I've learned from when I was 12 years old, is Eat with your friends. Eat with your family. Don't eat alone. It's different to nutrition. It's just different to what you should eat. Eat with your friends. Eat with your family, and and connect with each other. And you know you'll you'll just have the most wonderful life because those relationships that you can build when you when you eat with each other, I think make it make life worth living. Thanks for all the work you're doing in the world, and thanks for uh, continuing to do new and innovative and disruptive things, even though you don't have to. And thanks for being on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. If you like today's episode, uh, you know what to do. Go support Big Green, which is Kimball's nonprofit. It is something that's making a huge difference in the world. 
and we don't always see it uh, when we sit down at home to eat or at a restaurant, but the whole system of food is in the middle of changing right now. And Kimball's one of the guys making this happen. And uh, I'm, I'm really appreciative for his work and just for every time you sit down and choose food that was grown locally and food that's going to make you feel better and food that actually made the soil healthier, made the planet healthier and provided employment for the people around you. That's just the right way to live. And thanks for listening. Thank you. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.